I'd like to ask everyone to turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. And if you saw the slide that has the section for today or you looked at your bulletin, that's not a typo. Lord willing, we are going to cover 27 verses this morning. 26 verses this morning. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that the 26 verses this morning will take us longer than the four verses last week. But I'm hoping not much more than our usual sermon time. When we ended last week, the Lord had changed the Passover meal, given it new significance as a feast of remembrance that we call the Lord's Supper. Then he and his disciples sang a hymn and left the upper room. They walked east out of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, and back up onto the Mount of Olives to an olive grove that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the section that we're looking at for today. And I'd like to read it. I know it's a long section, but I'd like to get the entire flow of it together before we begin studying it. So I'm going to ask you to stand, please, and I'm going to read for us. This is Mark 14. I'm going to begin at verse 27 and go to verse 52. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, And kissed him. 
Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid a hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Let's pray together, please. Our Lord and God, this is your word. It is alive, it is powerful, it is sharp, and it pierces inside us. And that's what we're asking for today. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would use your word to reveal in us what needs to change so that we can be more like Christ. Father, we acknowledge that we cannot be saved apart from your grace. We cannot save ourselves. No religion can save us. But you invite us to come to you by faith because of the grace you have extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we confess that we cannot understand your word apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. So I ask, Holy Spirit, to anoint me today to preach your word accurately, to preach it clearly. And that you would give us ears and hearts that are ready, that are willing, that are eager to receive the implanted word. And Lord, that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives today. We know, you have promised that your word will not return to you void, but that it will accomplish what you send it to do. And that's what we're asking, Lord. Father, would you have your will in this room during this time that your words would come through loud and clear in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I have a photo for you that I trust will be memorable. What is that? Natalie? It's a spider, okay? It's a female spider. If you look closely, you can tell that. Here's a little bit of a a zoom in to try to help you with that. Here's how we know it's a female spider. What is riding on the spider? Yes, a bunch of baby spiders. I don't know about you, but there have been a couple times in my life that I have squashed a spider, a fairly large spider. Thankfully, it was outdoors both times this happened. And when I squashed that spider, little spiderlets went everywhere. It just looked like a big hairy spider, but it was lots and lots and lots of spiders. And that, I thought, would be a memorable way for us to remember the word scattered. Because what does that have to do with our passage in Mark today? No, there are no spiders in this passage. I just read it. You didn't hear the word spider, arachnid, anything like that. But God struck Jesus, who is the shepherd, and his disciples, the sheep, scattered. That is the key word that I see in this passage. It's in verse 27, the word scattered. And here's what I would like for us to spend our time 
exploring. The question I want us to answer, I'd like anyone, old to young, in this room to be able to go out and answer this question. Why did the disciples scatter? We're going to answer that as we go. You may think you already know the answer, and you may know it. But we're going to explore that and come to an answer from this passage. Two main ideas for you, main points for today. Number one, prayerfulness leads to peace and obedience. And number two, prayerlessness leads to fear and failure. And we're going to see both of those in this passage. Let's go back to verse 27. We'll work our way through a verse or a paragraph at a time. And I've mentioned before, I'm sure I'll mention again, that it is helpful when we're reading one of the Gospels to be able to compare it with the other Gospels. And as we compare Mark's account with the other Gospels, it seems that Jesus predicted two separate times that his disciples would fall away. The first time in the upper room was only to Peter. And that's recorded in Luke and John. And the second time, on the way out of Jerusalem or perhaps getting into the Garden of Gethsemane, was to all of the disciples. And that's in Matthew and Mark. So here we are, Mark, verse 27 of chapter 14. Then Jesus said to them, all of you, note that, all of you will be made to stumble. If you have a King James with you, it says, be offended. If you have most of the other modern translations, fall away. You will be made to fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There's our word, scattered. Here's a paraphrase of what I just read. This is from reading lots of different English translations. This is a paraphrase I'm offering you. Not inspired, but hopefully helpful. Jesus said to them, all of you will run away and leave me, and be ashamed of me, and be afraid to be associated with me as my disciples. For the scripture says, God will kill the shepherd, and all the sheep will run away. The shepherd, of course, is Jesus. He's our good shepherd, according to John chapter 10. He is our great shepherd, according to Hebrews 13. And all of us who know him by faith are his sheep. Now, I would like to say a word about what this scattering, this falling away, this being offended refers to. The disciples are not going to lose their faith permanently. That's not what's going on here. But they would turn their backs on Jesus temporarily. They were about to be tested and they would fail. But thankfully, that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus later restored them to fellowship with him. And we have it spelled out very clearly in the case of Peter as we read the end of the Gospel of John. Some of you have translations that have, at least in quotes, you might have it in all caps or italicized, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah. And we'll come back to that in just a little while. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Here's the issue. The disciples, Peter in particular, heard only the first part of what he said. Because he said, all of you are going to stumble. All of you are going to fall away because I mean, no, no, I would never do that. They're hung up on their own personal view. And they totally missed that. He said, when I am raised, 
Because anytime he predicted his death, he predicted his resurrection, and he did it here too. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. I'm going to go before you. Remember, he's the shepherd. They're the sheep. I'm going to go before you into Galilee. I'll meet you there. I don't think they ever heard those words. I mean, they must have since it got into the scriptures, but at the time, they did not hear or understand. They were not paying attention. How do we know? Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. His brashness, his arrogance is amazing. He was puffed up with pride. He was puffed up with self-confidence, so much so that he's arguing with Jesus. Not the first time he's done so. Not so, Lord. No, this isn't the way, Lord. (laughs) But this time he's not arguing just with Jesus. Jesus is quoting the scriptures. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's arguing with Jesus and Zechariah saying, no. Now, how is he doing that? He's saying, not I, Lord. Now, Thomas, Andrew, yeah, I can understand I have my doubts about him too, Lord. But not me. I would never deny you. I would never fall away from you. No, not I. Proverbs 3, 7 instructs us, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Romans 12, 3, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. Don't think too much of yourself. There are other verses I'm sure we could look at, but I have one Old Testament, one New Testament for you there. Proverbs 3, 7, Romans 12, 3, don't be puffed up. Don't think you've arrived. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it is unwise for you to compare yourself with others. But that's what he's doing. Verse 30, Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, this is his own personal private, assuredly I say to you. Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, pay attention, I'm about to tell you the truth, Peter. What did he say? Today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, before the rooster crows twice, that means probably before 3 a.m., certainly before sunrise, it's going to happen twice. I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't learn until a mission trip in Lithuania that roosters don't cry, crow just once. Some of them seem to crow all day long. And he's saying before that second time it crows, before you see daylight, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me how many times? Three times. He also intensifies what's going to happen with Peter. It's not just you're going to fall away. It's not just you're going to run away and pretend you don't know me. You are verbally going to deny me. And you're not going to do it just once. You're going to do it three times. So he intensifies this with Peter. You're going to say that you don't even know me. Peter argues some more. Verse 31. He spoke more vehemently. He's passionate. He's probably a little angry. Certainly he is offended already. Then he says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You've seen all these eyes and mys? And not to be outdone. And they all said likewise. They're all in agreement. We would never do this, Lord. We would never turn our backs on you. We would never run away. We are here for you. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride 
goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Independence, self-righteousness, self-confidence, they lead somewhere. They lead to prayerlessness. Are you self-confident this morning? If so, I suspect that you're prayerless. Someone said, our prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. When we fail to pray, we're telling God, in essence, I don't need you. I've got this today. When I, when I have an urgent issue, something I don't think I can handle, I'll get back to you, Lord. But in the meantime, I've got this. And when we don't pray, when we don't make time to pray, that is exactly what we're telling God. Verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he's talking to the 11. Remember, Judas has left. He'll show up in a few minutes. He has the 11 there, and he says, sit here while I pray. Where are they? Gethsemane. Literally, it means oil press. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus and his disciples came here frequently, so Judas was familiar with the place as well. And he told them, sit here while I pray. First instruction to them, just sit here until I've finished praying. That's probably something he did frequently. He said, just wait on me until I have finished praying. I want you to notice something. Prayer was Jesus' first response to the trial and temptation that he was failing. That was his first reaction. That was his natural response, his supernatural response, perhaps would be a better way to say that. And then his second response, I'm going to call it community. Look at verse 33. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. We often call these three the inner circle. This is not the first time he's taken them somewhere by themselves. In the book of Mark, chapter 5, he took these three with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. When he was transfigured before them on the mountain, that was Mark 9, it was these three who were with him. So his second response to trial and temptation was to seek help from his closest friends. That is not what I do naturally. That is probably not what you do naturally either. We tend to isolate ourselves when we're being tempted. We attempt to go it alone because we're afraid of opening up to another believer about our struggles. Now we know that Jesus was without sin, but please notice that he was also transparent with his friends about his temptation. What did he do? He said, I'm going to pray. What else did he do? He said, I'm going to surround myself with my closest friends. In a few minutes we'll see he invites them to pray along with him. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Continuing in verse 33, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Now we, we, we're familiar with this story, aren't we? 
Some of us have been reading this, hearing this since we were kids. And these words just kind of fly over our heads. Yep. We don't get the meaning very well at all. It says, he began to be troubled. Here are some different ways that that can be translated. He was frightened. Jesus was frightened? Yes. He was terrified. Alarmed. Stunned. Horrified. He began to be deeply distressed. Troubled. Anguished. Even depressed. Now some of you or your loved ones have experienced panic attacks before. So there are some parallels to that. But please understand that what Jesus was experiencing here was worse than anything any other human has ever experienced. He was in anguish of soul. He was heavy. He was distressed. He was depressed. He goes on to say, I am exceedingly sorrowful. He was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. That means he was deeply grieved. Some of you have lost loved ones, someone very close to you. You understand what grief does to you and how it weighs you down. He is deeply grieved, as if someone he loves has died. None of the disciples had ever seen Jesus like this. He felt scared to death. The prophet Isaiah described the coming Messiah, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When we look at the parallel over in Luke chapter 22, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That medical condition is called hematidrosis, and it's rare, but when it occurs, it's usually because someone is facing imminent death. Someone is going to be executed. Someone thinks that he or she is going to die. That makes sense, doesn't it? There are people who, understanding I'm about to die, they're sweating blood. The capillaries near the skin break. And the blood and sweat mix that is what's going on in Jesus' heart right now. That is what's going on in his life. That's what's going on in his body. Possibly with the exception of when he was tempted in the wilderness, this is the most intense temptation, trial, testing that he faced in his entire 30 plus years on earth. What's he being tempted to do if it's a trial? I believe what he's being tempted to do is bail. He's known the plan. He, as God, has understood the plan from before time began. This is the way mankind is going to be saved. But it's coming, and he's also human, and he's shrinking from it. He says, stay here and watch. He tells the three, watch. Now, we've reviewed this in the past. I won't do it today, but it means to be fully awake and fully alive, right? To be alert, high alert. Are you spiritually awake and alert in times of testing and trial and temptation? 
Verse 35 says that Jesus went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not I what I will, but what you will. As we put the accounts in the Gospels together, it seems that he came and he knelt, and at that point, he was face down as he prayed. He's begging, he's pleading with the Father. We wouldn't know this part except for the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that he was crying. With vehement cries and tears is what the writer of Hebrews gives us. And he says, if it were possible, if it is God's will, God, if it is possible within your will, because he knows, if you read on, he knows that all things are possible to his Father. He knows that. But if it's possible within your will, could this hour pass from me? What is this hour? His suffering, his death. The word Abba is Aramaic. It would be what a child would call his father. Daddy, Papa. Something that's very familiar, something that's intimate. Close personal relationship. The Jews did not use this term for father in prayer because they thought that would be irreverent. But he's, he's at home, he's comfortable. Crying out as a child to his father. And then we have the repeated word that's in the Greek, father. That's what an adult would call his or her father. He talks about this cup. It's a figurative cup. It's not a literal cup. Don't get it confused with what we talked about last time with the Lord's Supper. This cup is a figurative cup of wrath, of punishment. It represents the suffering that Jesus would face as he bore all the sin of mankind, as God's wrath was poured out on him, and especially as he was temporarily separated from his Father for the first time ever, first and only time ever. What was going to happen, not just, I shouldn't say just, but not just being crucified, not just the horrific death he was going to die and the physical suffering, but it was the separation from his father. Why? Because of sin. God is too holy than to look on sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, God, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinlessly perfect, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what is this cup he's talking about? It is the suffering, it is the wrath, it is the separation from his Father. And even after he has pled all of these things, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. David Guzik wrote that this prayer of Jesus eliminates any other way of salvation. If there's another way, his death was not necessary, and this prayer was never answered. When you face a trial or a crisis... Are you prayerful? And in those moments where you are crying out to God, begging Him, are you nevertheless submitted to His will? This is what I desire so much, Lord. This is what I'd like to see you do. 
but whatever your will is, that's what I want. That's what Jesus is praying for. Verse 37, Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He came and found them sleeping. Let's review for a moment. What were they supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be watching. What are they doing? They're sleeping. Simon, he, he chooses Simon because Simon's the leader. Simon's been the most outspoken that, oh, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm, I'll never leave you. I, I won't forsake you. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Maybe earlier Peter meant, I'll die with you, Lord, but I just can't stay awake for you. Maybe that's what he should have said. I loved what one person wrote. Peter was ready to resist any attack except the attack of the Sandman. He was up for any challenge except that. But before we're too hard on Peter, let's remember that James and John had made bold promises to Jesus as well. If we went back, you don't have to turn there. Mark 10, verse 38, Jesus asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, we're able. Sign us up. We're good to go. This is the cup he was talking about. And they're sleeping. How about us? How many of us spent an hour, a solid hour, praying about anything this week? And I'm talking to me too. How many of you have ever spent an hour praying about any one thing? Watch and pray. Now he tells them to pray as well. Watch and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation. What temptation? To stumble. To fall away. To deny him. To run away. Again, I ask you, are you spiritually asleep? Are you watchful and prayerful? Would you say that your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak? Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. This may be the only time in the Gospels that Peter is speechless. Why? Why? Because either he's too sleepy to form an answer or he has no excuse. Are you prayerless? Are you spiritually asleep and therefore unable to answer? Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary, all of us should give ourselves to regular daily prayer. If we are not living a life dependent on prayer, we are sinning. You cannot and will not be able to follow Christ. This is our dependence. This is the expression of our dependence on God. He told his disciples, without me, you can do what? Nothing. 
And yet we go off to start our day and we haven't even thought about it. Or maybe we read a verse. Or maybe we prayed for our food for breakfast. Good. But we are going out totally unprepared for the battle because we have not expressed our need of Him. Some of you may be thinking, Bob, I thought you said there were two main points today. Are we ever going to get to them? Yes, we are. Here we are. Point number one, prayerless, prayerfulness leads to peace and obedience. And I'm going to point this out here in verses 41 and 42 in a minute. And then when we get to verse 48, that Jesus, after praying those three times, after spending at least an hour in prayer, he's calm. And the rest of them are frantic. If you've never meditated on, if you've never memorized Philippians 4, I would encourage you to do that this week. I'm going to show you these verses, verses 6 through 9 of Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is not the passage I'm preaching today, so I'm not going to get down into the different words, but there are different ways of saying pray. So what is Paul writing to the Philippians? Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Verse 7, and the peace of God. How many of you want the peace of God? What do we need in order to experience the peace of God? We need to pray. And the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, umpire your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want peace in your life? Then pray about everything. And then he gives us some further instructions. Verse 8, this is the filter through which we, would, we should be pouring our thoughts. Finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think about what is worthy and then obey what you already know is right. Look at verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, Paul writes, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Pray, verse 6, and you have the peace of God, verse 7. Obey, verse 9, and you have the God of peace. If we don't have peace in our lives, if we are scattered, then we need to stop and ask ourselves, am I praying and am I obeying? And answer those questions honestly before the Lord. Verse 41, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Notice that Jesus is no longer fearful. He is no longer emotional, that we can tell. He is calm. He is victorious. He is resolved to go to the cross and lay down his life willingly to obey his Father and to provide salvation for all of us.
Why? Because he's already won the battle through prayer. He has already counted the cost and weighed the consequences and thought through it and prayed about what God the Father's will was. And he said, yes, that is what I want. That is what I believe is the will of God and I'm going to do it. And he is experiencing the peace of God. That type of peace is not the absence of conflict, people. Has any of the trial he's facing gone away? Has God taken away any of it from him? No. Is God going to take any of it away from him? No. And yet he is calm and he is ready. Because he has fought on his knees. Verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas, one of the twelve, third time that he's described him that way in this chapter, a great multitude with swords and clubs. This large mob included Roman soldiers, because a captain is mentioned over in John 18. And they are there at the request of and led by the chief priests and scribes and the elders. So they're representatives of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. It's a big group. We don't know how many. The Bible doesn't tell us. But as we put together the gospel accounts, it could have been hundreds of people coming out to this garden location to capture Jesus. Verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now that was normal. I know it seems odd to us, but that was normal for a disciple to kiss a rabbi on the hand or on the cheek. It'd be the same as greeting somebody or shaking hands in our culture. But there's an intensified verb form here, and it suggests that Judas made this into a dramatic gesture. Why? Because it's dark, and he wants everyone to know which one Jesus is. He didn't glow in the dark. He didn't look any different from the rest of them. So he is leading them to Jesus. Then, verse 46 says, they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John 18 that the one who stood by, that's Peter, and that the one who was the servant of the high priest, that's Malchus. And we also know from Luke that Jesus stopped long enough to heal his ear. Mark is in a storytelling mode, and he, he's going for the not so many details, but telling us a story, giving us the urgency of it. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? They're treating him like he's armed and dangerous and a flight risk. They're bringing an army out against him. He says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Again, Jesus is the only calm person there. Why? Because he has the peace of God. Why? Because he's been praying. And the only thing he protests to isn't being arrested. He knows what's going to happen. 
but the way in which they're doing it under cover of darkness after, after he's been in the temple every day teaching publicly and they want to come do it secretly under the cover of darkness. Second point, leading us to verse 50. Prayerlessness leads to fear and failure. Verse 50. Let's read it together. Then they all forsook him and fled. Who did? All. And yes, specifically the disciples, but how many of the disciples? All of them. All of them. This is the fulfillment. Zechariah had predicted centuries before that the shepherd will be killed and all the sheep will run away. So now I'm coming back to my question from the beginning. Why did the disciples scatter? Why were the sheep scattered? And you can give me the Sunday school answer because the prophecy said so. Yes, that's true. I want to go deeper than that. Why did they scatter? Why did they all run away? Because they were self-confident. They were self-reliant. They were independent. They were proud. And because of these attitudes, they were prayerless. And because they were prayerless, they were powerless against temptation. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. Their spirit was willing. Their flesh was weak. And when temptation came, they fell. Does this sound familiar to you? Sounds familiar in my life. We are setting ourselves up for failure when we do not make time to pray and commune with the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, had spent time alone with his Father praying. And when the arrest and trial began, he didn't run, he didn't waver. Instead, Philippians tells us he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Then we have these curious verses at the end, don't we? 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Why is this in this story? We have this climactic, then they all forsook him and fled. We fulfilled the prophecy. We finished sort of a sandwich again from Mark. And then we have these two verses, this epilogue for this section. Well, many, and I would say most, based on the study Bibles and commentaries that I've looked at, believe that this is Mark. The, the only other suggestion I found anywhere was Lazarus, which is interesting, because they wanted to kill him too, remember. But Mark, if we take the traditional account, this is tradition, not the Bible, that the upper room was Mark's mother's house, then it's quite possible that Judas brought the mob back there and the disturbance woke up Mark because obviously whoever this was has been sleeping. And you say, what was he wearing? Well, it could have been a sheet or it could have been linen. It was for rich people. It may have been a linen sleeping garment, like a night shirt. But whatever it was, he wasn't wearing much because he had been asleep. And he was out there. And it seems like they saw him and they were ready to grab him too and he ran, around, ran, ran away naked or in his underwear. Why? Because he was fearful. He's not one of the 11, but even this one, whether it was Mark or someone else, ran away. 
they all forsook him and fled. Main ideas. Prayerfulness leads to peace and obedience. Which of us would not want that in our lives today and this week? Prayerfulness leads to peace and obedience. Prayerlessness leads to fear and failure. There may be somebody who's joined us online today, there may be somebody in the room that you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. He is the good shepherd and he invites you to come to him and to put your faith in him alone for salvation. To believe in him is eternal life and you can trust him today. You simply call out to him. We call that prayer, talking to God. And you tell him, Lord, save me. Save me from sin. Save me from eternal separation from you. Believers, how's your prayer life? I haven't said any of this to put anyone here on a guilt trip. That is not my place. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody emotionally either, but I want us to ask ourselves, if you mapped out your past week, how much time did you spend in prayer? if any. How many times did you fight temptation? How many times did you fall? And just ask yourself, is there a correlation? I wasn't praying, and I stumbled again. I fell into sin again. We can confess our sins. He's faithful. He's righteous. He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No question about that. He'll restore our fellowship. But are we powerless because we're prayerless? If the answer is yes, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to try harder. It's going to have to start with humility, isn't it? It's going to have to start by confessing, Lord, I have been living my life independent from you. And I'm confessing that as sin. And I am pursuing the fresh start that you're willing to give me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm not going to give an invitation. But I am going to invite you to pray. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to change something, please do it. Please talk to him about it. Please humble yourself. And I think I would add this, that if the Lord is prompting your heart in some way this morning, that you're making a decision remember what else Jesus did? He surrounded himself with his friends. And it would be a really good idea for you to tell a friend or a sibling or a parent of what God is leading you to do this morning. Our Father, please have your way in us. Lord, I confess that I am too often 
careless with my prayer life. Lord, I am too easily distracted. And Lord, I suspect that there are many brothers and sisters in this room who struggle in the same ways. And Lord, we confess that our spirit may be willing, but our flesh is so weak. So please, by your grace, help us to reckon our flesh to be dead to sin. Give us strength in temptation from spending time with you. Give us sweet times of communion in your word and praying to you. Give us friends, brothers and sisters in our lives who will encourage us in these ways that we may see victory, that we may see change, that we may see you at work in our lives because you are a God who hears and answers prayer and we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.